The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. Welcome to the final stock take of 2021. My name's Gaurav Sodi, and joining me for this momentous occasion is, I think for the first time in the year, possibly, is John Addis. Hey, John. Hey, Gaurav, how are you doing? I thought I'd give you a really uh, big, eventful intro, but I'm not it's sure. It's all downhill from here, I think. It is, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think that's the problem. We probably peaked. <laughs> oh, and how about we picked Jack, because we've still got to introduce James Carlisle. Hey, James. Hey, how's it going? All right, now we picked. That's the end. That's it. It's all go. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> Turn it off, Steph. <laughs> Gents, what a year! Uh, look, you probably can mm. guess what I want to talk about because I <laughs> whipped everyone in top three. So for far, three. one third of the way. Uh, yeah. James, I didn't want to point this out, but I am double what the next closest person is. You're not going to catch me. No one's going to catch me. I'm the runaway with this one. Fall. It does, doesn't it? Right. Does that make up, uh, didn't you come last in the one, the, the one oh, before? Oh, horribly like, last. Yeah, and yeah. last by a mile. In fact, I lost run. money last time. Oh, I think we've mentioned that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 I think there's a real um, strategy to this game as well. It's not just about picking the best stuff. You've got to, you've got to take lean into the right amount of risk at the right time and mm. balance the three things out. I think I've, I, I've got this down now. I know how to do this. <laughs> I think from here... From here, it's all going to be plain sailing. <laughs> but uh, the apart from me uh, winning you one and all, um, the other thing I wanted to to talk to you fellows about is just what an extraordinary eighteen month period we've had, and the results from top three of three for you one, I think um, demonstrate that to some extent. Um, JC, sorry, John. Yours do, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's been... I, I I thought when we went through the GFC, I wasn't working in the business. I wasn't a professional investor, but I was investing my own money. I thought that would be a once-in-a-lifetime sort of experience. We'd never see a drawdown or a, a rise quite like that. But here we are um, just over 10 years later, and we've had something similar. Mm. What what did you make of it, John? Was that I mean you have more experience than than me? Is that something uh, you kind of prepare for? No, not not at all. I mean, it, it was just hard to imagine how how rapidly it came and and then how rapidly things came back. Mm. And I, I remember the we actually had a development session on on I think That's it was right. March the twenty third. That's right. Never forget it. Yeah. And I was out getting scans done on the Gold Coast. And dialing in to this development session uh, with Greg Hoffman as a former research director, and he was talking about Centre, I think, and he was saying, "This is it, you know. This is another GSC. We mm. we didn't expect another one of these in our lifetimes, but here it is. Mm. You know, ten years later, we've got another chance. If you're not acting now, then what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. Um, and turned out to be absolutely right, and yeah. we've done pretty well from it. But I'm just amazed at how quickly things have turned around i'm absolutely astonished by it jc the gfc really helped frame um for me anyway the um the drawdown because i'd seen a huge um collapse during the gfc then i saw a spectacular rise and when it came this time i wasn't as fearful and i was actually quite excited by the opportunities you were probably even you were you were almost gleeful. I remember you. Well, I was too um, early. I was in just, too early. <laughs> you were too early, but it's better to be early than not to be yeah, in it at all. I was in too early and out mm. too early as well. But uh, you're rubbing your hands together. Uh, I mean, I, you were almost you had a smile on your face the whole crisis. I couldn't believe well, it. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> um, look, I was certainly buying stocks. I mean, you know, you get it, it was unusual in that it was a totally different kind of crisis to anything that most people well anyone that anyone has ever experienced because previous pandemics have not had the same policy response so the idea of locking down you know closing borders locking down um you know people in their own homes and all that sort of thing um was just never experienced before and people absolutely freaked and and because because they'd not seen it before i suppose and but you know the question you had to ask is does that justify you know did that wipe 
30 40 percent whatever it was off the value of the of australia corporate australia if you like you know because that's what the mm-hmm. stock market said and i think you have to take the conclusion that that it that it didn't and and so that so acting was the right was the right thing to do but it was it was all it, it was scary i mean it always is scary and when when things recovered a bit <laughs> i was i was i was running for the hills for a little bit because um you know, I could see the debt, and I and I and I'm still worried about the debt. But um, you know, maybe that's something that'll take a little while to play out. Um, you know, the government debt, the government balance sheets, maybe the inflation, all of that, all the all of those arguments take a little bit of time to play out. At the moment, interest rates are very low, and the market's very comfortable with that. <laughs> and uh, and so that's why we've seen the big bounce. Uh, I just want to add to that. I mean, I think it's not just the return of the share prices, stock prices that's been so rapid, and that's. Um, one of the most stunning things about it but there's also been lots of changes that are kind of psychological in that you know for 30 or 40 years we've been told that you know we have to worry about the debt mm. and you know everybody is still worried about the debt but you know there is kind of a, mag- a magic money tree that we found that's always been there but we've we've realized that we can call on it when we need to and not much seems to change now, it might be that that money tree can't grow to the sky. We don't know where that point is. But that does kind of change the way you think about debt in a, in a modern society and what you can do with it. So I think there's been a psychological shift in that sense. Um, and there's also this idea that sort of continued from the GSC that no matter what happens, asset prices will be protected. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the things that has really come out of this, I think, too. Um, the Reserve Bank and central banks around the world have, have done what they can to protect asset prices and as a way of protecting society. I think a lot of that actually comes down to this lesson we've learned about debt. Now, I distinctly remember in the GFC when central banks moved into action and expanded balance sheets rapidly, there was real fear amongst some investors that this would lead to inflation. I mean, the, the old Milton Friedman creed was... Um, what, what is it, John, that um, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary, monetary phenomenon? phenomenon yeah. So if, if you print, well, if you raise the money supply, it's an automatic inflation trigger. I must admit, I kind of expected the same thing to happen. And when it didn't, I think that's really changed the possibilities for central bankers. And so when this crisis came about, there was a, a real, um, the, the hesitancy had disappeared and there was a real um, urgency of action um, because mm. I think the consequences were better understood of, of printing lots of money. I, I've been surprised by those consequences. I keep thinking that there has to be some cost to just um, increasing balance sheets massively and, and increasing the money supply. There has to be a price for that somewhere. I just don't see where it well, is. Well, the, co- the mm. cost is that, that it'll knock a percent or so a year off the government's um, finances or however you want to phrase it. Um, because it's got to pay the interest on the debt, um, it's got to repay the debt somehow, and and just doing that over the next sort of fifty years is going to cost a percent a year, let's say, of GDP, just r- roughly rough numbers. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's a percent that, that you can't be spending on the health service or education, and so it's a slow burn. I think there is a massive impact. The other thing is that um, it's just a, not a short term impact, so we're sort of blind to it, and and that's I, I don't really adhere to that. I mean, the magic money money tree seem, seems to be there, but it's it's real money that's being spent, and uh, you know, the, the, it, it's money that could have been spent on on fibre to the home, for example. That was what was that sixty billion they were talking about spending for that, and then they scrapped it, mm. and and this mm. has cost us what several hundred billion, um, and it, it it narrows our options for things we do in the future. What happens if we get another pandemic in ten years' time? We we really will not be able to do the same thing again. Um, and and I just think, you know, at some stage, those government balance sheets have got to be repaired a bit. And I, I don't know how how long that will take and, and when it will happen. But I think the easiest way that governments will find to do that will be to encourage a little bit of inflation somehow. Mind you, they've been trying to encourage inflation for, for 10 years and failing. So, <laughs> When you spoke about that, that 90% thing, that's the, the Reinhardt and Rogoff study, I think which said that once public debt exceeds about 90% of GDP for at least five years, then there's a, there's a 1% growth penalty over, over the long term. 
Um, and we're now up to about 120. So we, we don't know whether that study is true or not. We're going to find oh, out. Uh, uh, <laughs> but at the moment, we can't assume it's true because we haven't been here before. Well, I, th- really. I think you can because it's, it's not Reinhardt and Rogoff I was thinking about. I was just thinking of the fact that they pay whatever interest they pay or will have to pay. And also the fact that if you just say 1%, of, well, 400 billion, well, I, I forget the exact numbers, whatever it is, $300 billion. Um, if you pay that off over 50 years, it's X amount of GDP. And that comes, if you just mm. do that sum, it comes to about 1%. I don't know if that's what Reinhardt and Rogoff mm. were doing, but the, the um, you know, the, 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 I, the I num- think their study was looking at, looking at economies that had gone over that oh, okay. level of debt right. and what their potential impact was on GDP growth. Yeah. But the money needs so to be different, yeah. but kind of the same. I mean, the money ultimately needs to be paid back, doesn't it? I mean, or, or, or I mean, you can't just keep growing well, that, it. That's anyway. the question. Well, you, but you can't, that, that's the thing, growing it to the tree. I mean, and then you get another mm-hmm. pandemic. I mean, you, you know, ultimately, mm-hmm. eventually the, the government will have to pay more interest on the debt. You know, at the moment it's paying 0.1%, but, you know, at some point that'll be 1%. Or, and, and, and when it's 1%, then... That's your one percent cost right there. It's mm. not just the debt or the, the the cost of the borrowing that worries me. It's the it's the genuine distortions in in asset values it's created. So I know we haven't seen a lot of um, CPI inflation, but there's no doubt. And you go all the way back to the GFC, and you can see it that asset prices everywhere have just ballooned from classic cars to art. Um, you know, anything rare. Just, I, I wonder if cryptocurrency could have existed at any other time other than a moment of, of crazy central bank expansion. Um, you know, I think you can draw a direct line from the response to the GFC to the, the growth of crypto. Uh, and, um, you know, that, it worries me. I mean, look at the valuations are just mind boggling on any historical level, but probably um justified when you consider where interest rates are but they're at a, a level that implies a crisis and uh, you know we're, we're just not at crisis level so this is this really worries me throughout history when you've had the wrong uh, monetary policy setting for a long time you mm-hmm. end up with massive distortions and you have to pay for those and the cost is not just a small amount every year a cost is often a gigantic blow up at some stage and i'm well, just holding my breath waiting for it Mm, I think I think a good comparison in that sense is probably Japan, mm. where they've had what you could argue is a wrong monetary monetary policy for a long, long time. That's true. Which has protected companies that have, should have failed decades ago and never have. Mm. So that that's one potential distortion. I mean, they have a declining population, which is a struggle for them. But you, maybe Japan is a case where you can see the penalty in GDP terms mm. from having from running those levels of debts and very low interest rates for a very long time. The other thing that's really surprised me has been the retail participation in the rally. Mm. Uh, often we see um, a retail participation do, often doing the, the, the wrong thing, you know, joining the rally at the wrong time, selling at the wrong time, um, and the pros doing the, doing the opposite. And it was completely flipped this time. I, I saw some some graphs of um, of monetary flows, and the instos, the professional investors, were retreating at the bottom, and uh, retail investors were piling in. And we've seen a huge retail participation, and they've really um, outplayed the the pros in many ways. And probably the first time in my life I've seen that. Yeah, not not just outplayed them, but kind of taken them on as well. With all of the meme stocks, we haven't really seen anything like that before. And they're not just taking them on, but they've been winning in businesses that should have failed. But um, the retail investors have propped them up and allowed them to continue mm. at the expense of all the people who are shorting them and obvious kinds of shorts. Mm. That feels like just another signal of that. There are so many signals for the top. You know, when you go through um, books, we. We read about all the signals, uh, you know, when there's blood in the streets. When mm. and, and one by one, you can just tick them all off. You know, huge increase in IPOs, massive retail participation, new accounts, record margin lending, record multiples, um, speculative bubbles. It's it's all there, and uh, it I, but it just keeps getting uh, getting kicked along, and I and, and I'm finding it quite difficult. The hardest thing at the moment is just um, what to do with the gains we've made mm. and uh you know they've been so spectacular um 
I, I'm wary about sort of exiting now because often during the later stages of the bull market is where you where where you make some of the best returns, and I don't necessarily want to miss that. But perhaps we've had it. It, it is. <laughs> well, maybe we've had it. Well, well, I that's right. Perhaps we did. But I, I, I think that's dangerous sort of thinking, though, to because to, you're you, that, that you're beginning to play the market now. I think you've got to stick to valuation and and your confidence in in that valuation and you know quality stocks which, which have been bid up to very high PEs you know they'll probably keep going ahead but you're not going to get that multiple expansion anymore and, you, and so the returns well I don't think you know so the returns you're going to get from them are going to be somewhat more muted um, the weaker stocks I suppose the point is that they can't all win and they're all being priced a bit like they're all going to be winners I suppose in some of these SaaS sort of sectors um, but uh yeah, I, I'm I'm trading very carefully. I, I've I've still got the remnants of a mortgage to to pay off, so I'm I'm still able to reduce and, and save myself. Well, actually, it's only a few percent a year now, but <laughs> I mean that's the thing, isn't it? Jeez. <laughs> yeah. John, what do you think? Is it is it now the time to lock in gains and retreat, or is is it is it still offensive? This is just one of the hardest questions in investing, I think, and. Um... I, I've never had a clear answer about it. I mean, I was, I was editing Nathan's story a couple of days ago that we posted to the site today. But he kind of makes a case for holding more cash and, you know, discusses the the virtues of holding cash in a, in a moment like this, which I can see the optionality and the patience that's needed to get through a period like this. Um, and I have a lot of sympathy with that point of view. But at the same time, it's hard to sell some of these great businesses that we own. I mean, if I had mediocre businesses in my portfolio, then you know I probably would think about selling those down. But I think the companies that we've been recommending over the past 18 months, by and large, are good quality, high growth businesses that are more likely to surprise on the upside over the next 10 years. Uh, and to think about reducing your holdings now um, means that you're kind of making a judgment on where the market is and what it's likely to do next. And I'm just always really uncomfortable about doing that. I just don't like doing that sort of thing. I think I think Reese is quite a good example because we downgraded that. I downgraded that yesterday uh, again. So we said sell at 20 again. bucks and then it's now <laughs> yeah. 25 bucks. And so I said sell again. Uh, I've been hanging at the sell price of 20, $20. I've been trying my best to avoid doing it, but eventually you have to pull pull the trigger. And uh, look, you, you know, it's on a P, you're getting on for 50. Um, the thing with Reese is it has to reinvest a fair bit in its business. Its return on capital is sort of 25, 30%. So it has to keep reinvesting. So the cash flow yield is less than the earnings yield. So, you know, you, you, you're on a, a free cash flow yield of, you know, 2, 3%, uh, you know, something, something around there, which is pretty low. Um, it's growing pretty well. It's the U.S. business is is going very well. It could certainly keep delivering sort of around ten percent. I wouldn't be surprised. And I guess look, that's a that's a that's an attractive enough return. I, I, and you know that's the balance people have got to make. I think the the quality stocks. If you're going to hold on to things, despite the fact that I've just downgraded Reese, you know, if you're going to hold on to things, I think I, I always think quality is the better place to be. I suppose. Mm. I, I suppose the other part of that. The answer to your question, Gaurav, is if you are a member who is contemplating selling Reese, you also have to ask what you're going to do with that money, whether you are going to sit on the cash that you realized, or are you going to uh, reinvest it in some of the opportunities on the buy list? What, what's your feeling about that, James? Well, that's, I mean, that's the point, isn't it? So we, we, we can only give general advice. So we can only give you know, we can't say, well, I suppose we could say sell this and switch into that. And occasionally we do within one sector. But, um, you know, I think people have to make the judgment about that. Obviously, when we're saying sell something and we've got buy recommendations elsewhere, then that's the, you know, that's the inference, isn't it? And um, and I think that's a fair one. I mean, I own Omni Bridgeway and I don't own Reese, for example. Um, <laughs> but that's because I never bought Reese. I got close to it, <laughs> but uh, but no cigar. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, it's a little bit dangerous at times like this because, you know, these quality stocks have done so well, um, the last, yeah. uh, well, even 10 years, but, but, uh, but the last 18 months particularly, and it, 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 it's the hardest thing to, it's, it's like trying to buy something that keeps falling, 
you know, trying to sell something that keeps going up is is pretty hard too. But, you know, eventually, I, I suppose, you know, if you buy a quality business like Reese on a PE of 20, then you 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 have that higher um, earnings yield, free cash flow yield. You have the potential for a multiple expansion. Um, mm. And, you know, the company keeps trotting along same as, you know, same as ever. But, but when you're on a PE of 50, that multiple expansion is less likely. Uh, indeed, there's more of a risk of a contraction. The free cash flow yield you're getting to tide you over is less. Um, so, you know, the, the, the risks change, the value equation changes. And at some point, I think you do need to act and, and try to find things which are better value. Um, you know, we've got things on our buy list, which we like. Um, whether you then sit in cash, that's, I mean, I have a bit of, as I've said, mortgage to pay off, which makes the calculation slightly easier for me in terms of selling things. But sitting on cash, I've, I've always been reluctant with money that you want part of your investment portfolio. I'm always reluctant to have that. Um, you know, it's the old Peter Lynch thing of being caught with your trousers up. Um, but yeah. geez, the, the, you know, I can't, can't stretch that metaphor, but, but the, the, I don't know, the trousers have been up the last, last couple of years, haven't they? <laughs> uh, I think this could go all horribly yeah, wrong. So, uh, so uh, the conclusion is, is that I think the hardest thing in investing right now is to sell Reese and go and buy Magellan. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> It is, it is getting harder to find ideas as well. You can, you can see that from the slow addition of new buy ideas from us. It's often a sign. It's, it's amazing how we don't intend to do it, but when our buy list shrinks, uh, it's a good sign that it, the market's getting a bit expensive. And as it expands, it's often a sign that look, things are, this is probably a good I'd time. say that's been a quite a good, no. uh, you know, not many to it's blow our trumpets, but, but it has, that yeah. has been a reasonable indicator the last... The last um, yeah, the I'd say over, over the last yeah. 10 10 years it's been a great indicator yeah and i don't know how many buyers are on there now but i i know it's getting awfully hard to not well that's right i think that we had a record 13, I think. 13 that's more than i thought actually yeah mm. yeah but there was there was a there was um uh over 30 18 months ago yeah yeah and yeah. uh so it's shrunk a, a long way and we've been looking awfully hard and some of the stocks that are on the buy list now have been there for quite some time so we're not, not adding to them at a great rate. Now, the buy list, John, is actually a great segue to come back to the top three for three, because this year you mm. asked us to introduce a new inclusion. Um, each of us to in, introduced a new inclusion, in fact. And um, I found it quite easy to do that, um, but I suspect the others found it harder because they don't want to buy coal. JC? Yeah. Oh, no, I found it yeah. pr pretty pretty easy. Um, oh, you found it pretty easy, did yeah, you? Yeah, I... Um, <laughs> what did you add? What did uh, you add? Omni Bridgeway was, was mine. Of course. Um, right, right, but I mean, I, look, I've been... Yeah. I've found a couple of things to buy myself. I mean, this is what I always go for in this competition is the sort of... It really comes down to the three stocks I've been most likely to buy recently or most, you know, thinking about buying yeah. recently. And then and the same for the edition this year. So Omni Bridgeway and MVP are the my two most recent editions. And, um, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's a bit of a toss-up between those two. I like them both. Um, mm. Omni Bridgeway just has that benefit of being a little bit um, counter-cyclical. I wouldn't call it counter-cyclical. I'm not sure it is cyclical, but it's it's separate from the stock market in as much as it depends on, you know, legal decisions rather than on, uh, you know, how the market does. So so if um, if the market goes belly up, then hopefully Omni Bridgeway will keep doing its thing. Well, that's actually one of the secrets from, well, that's one of the things I kind of changed this, this time around. Um, in previous years, I've tried to do what I think is sensible or what optically looks uh, sensible or the thing that might get me over the line. And this year, I just went with the stuff I personally own and personally had been buying. So the the, the stuff that I that I included in the portfolio is a, a three of my top five holdings that I own personally, and I just thought, look, that makes the most sense, um, and it's the the simplest and easiest to justify. And with my new inclusion, I did the same thing. I just did the the last thing I've kind of been buying, um, which is um, which is Whitehaven Coal, which I, I think. Look, I might be. I, I want to be open to the fact that I could be horribly wrong about this. You know, maybe 
the market's right. No one wants to buy coal. Maybe that's the right choice. It is declining and it could decline faster than what I'm anticipating. You know, I've got a long history with commodities. I might be tainted by that history and, um, and stubborn to change my mind. Um, goodness knows that's not an impossibility, but, um, but I, I, I can't understand the valuation here. To me, this seems um, ludicrous. I've been talking to a couple of uh, brokers and fund managers, just trying to just trying to get what consensus is and and trying to understand what others are thinking, what the other side is thinking, why no one else is buying it. <laughs> and from what I've heard, I've heard from a couple of brokers and a couple of fundies that they don't feel comfortable buying it for their clients or for their funds because of the ESG implications. Mm. But intriguingly, they are buying it PA. Uh, one right? broker told me that all his clients are buying it uh, on, on their personal accounts, not for their funds. And um, another fundy told me, yeah, we've got analysts buying it, buying coal and, uh, and, and non-ESG stocks, not specifically Whitehaven, I should add, just non-ESG stuff on their personal accounts, but mm. they can't buy it. For, for their clients or for their business, I, th uh, I think it's it, it, sorry, it ruins the it ruins the fund optically. Sorry, go sorry, ahead. I was just going to say I think it, it it's not just the ESG thing. It's it's just difficult to make a case for it. You know, if you go and have a meeting with your big mm. client and uh, yeah. you got a couple of coal stocks in there, then they say, "Why have you got coal stocks in there? Because coal's you know going going um going out backwards." And uh, and then you've got to sort of explain blah 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 and cash flow yields and you know and it's um it, it's a difficult argument to make. It's much easier to make arguments about stocks that have been going up the last last eighteen months. Um, yeah, and the the extraordinary valuation I don't think is an adequate defence because in commodities in resources you generally sell stocks at very cheap optical valuations. I mean we sold um, Fortescue and Rio at what looked to be super cheap valuations and were ultimately that was ultimately proven to be the right decision. Um, and, and the same case could be made for Whitehaven. A lot of, I think one of the points, one of the brokers said, well, everyone knows, you know, the clients know that you sell um, resource stocks at low PEs. And so if we end up start buying them at these PEs and it doesn't work out, you know, we're just going to look like idiots. <laughs> and um, I think that's probably correct. And, and I think we risk that very same conundrum, like, but fortunately for for um, the subs and for the team, uh, I have a lot of history of looking like an idiot, and I have no problem <laughs> with it at whatsoever. I, I think so. you're under 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 selling yourself there, Gora. You've actually got a very good history of picking this kind of situation. Yeah. Um, with iron ore twice, I think. And after, uh, after looking like a uh, well, you have to look like a fool for some portion of the time. To right. Be right. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's that's, that's taking right. that's what the taking the risk is all about. Yeah. But that's the value of the top three for three contest, I think, isn't it? That's really why we do it because it enables stocks which um, may be too small to recommend. Uh, you know, not necessarily our usual thing, but it gives a, a flavour, gives an idea to people of, of you know what we personally, individually favouring. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Globe was the was the standout um, in the, over the last year, and um, it's an idea I need to give Greg credit for because um, you know he, he brought it to to all of our attention, and uh, hmm. we did some work on it together. Um, and I spent some time working on it by myself, and um, uh, it was interesting. I think I was the only one to to buy it at first, but uh, I think more analysts have. Yeah, I, of, I think um, I paid twice what board. you paid, but um, well, you the, may I think you may well have done. Yeah, that but uh, look, it's still doing all right, but. Um, it, it's it was incredibly funny. illiquid, and that's why we're not able it, that, to recommend it. Absolutely, we, we just cannot. Even personally, it took me, it took me months to get my positions in months, and we just can't recommend that kind of business. It 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 doesn't do anyone any favors. I don't think recommending it um, formally it distorts the the price. People won't be able to get in. It, yeah, there's a good reason why we don't do it, but it's a perfect thing for the top three for three. I actually distinctly remember when I, I bought it. Hoff and I went to um, a wedding of a of a mutual friend, and and uh, we we were. It was raining the whole wedding. It was a, it went over um, two days, and we were in a cabin together, and it was raining with our with our um, wives. I might add, uh, but it was it was raining, and our poor wives. Uh, Kind of got uh, got pushed to the side while Hoff and I kind of worked on <laughs> stocks together during That's a, the wedding. A classic Greg wedding attendant. It is a classic Greg wedding, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And we came out, and uh, and I, I think I bought Globe the next day, um, or as soon as we got back to back to town. It was 
Yeah, it was it was something. I'm going forget. to the wrong yeah. wedding. I think he did that at his own wedding. Best best wedding yeah. ever. <laughs> John, we've had a few people. Compl- oh, one person. Brad, I think there would be many, many more wondering why you're not into this competition and what you might be doing. You are the mm. founder of this fine business and um, and something of a, a mentor for all of us. So this is your chance. Um, why aren't you in it? And what would you do? Well, I, I think that the the licensing probably stops me from doing it. Oh, okay. I Otherwise, okay. I would. Uh, right. I might check that and, and do it for the next one. But yeah, you know, I, I would love to. That's the reason you guys board. have a different, and I have a different kind of license mm. restriction from you guys because okay. you have all done your RG146. RG146, yeah. and I haven't. So that's that's the reason for it. I did want to mention something. I just want to ask you a question about why having Colo Gora because yeah. I actually bought that when we when you first recommended it. And you mean at 98 I was cents. walking around Bar and Char just feeling so guilty. <laughs> yeah. Well, somewhere <laughs> around. It was pretty low. Yeah. And 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 I was walking around Bar and Char with all of these judgmental people, you know. <laughs> Perhaps knowing maybe if they found that I owned a coal stock, you know, could I really do it? Now I've moved down to Melbourne, I have lesser restrictions. <laughs> and uh, and I'm thinking maybe I could have a second bite at this. But the situation the situation you describe, and I'll, I'll read the paragraph from the story about uh, Whitehaven where you say, the current share price is ludicrously cheap, but even if it doesn't move, dividends will make up the shortfall. Mm. Whitehaven feels like cheating. And just that paragraph there reminded me of RHG, you know, the former Rams Home Loans Group. Oh, yeah, yeah. And when, when so this was in the GFC, it was making these home loans out of a big mortgage book. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the global financial system sort of seized up and there were these huge concerns over whether it could roll over all of its financing to continue with these loans, with its, to support its loan book. And Steve Johnson did a lot of work on that business. And over the months, it became clear that there were just no defaults on its loan book. And it didn't need to roll over finance. Everything was being, or the money that was coming in uh, was there and was going to continue to come in. Mm. And But the sentiment was so much against the idea of a, a finance business that needs to go offshore to support its business. Mm. Um it was so much against those kind of businesses that that thing fell from what one fifty down to about five cents. Yeah, and Steve, I think, sold everything he owned to buy as much as he could of it. And this kind of feels similar. You know, you've got a business that's continuing to perform really well, but sentiment is just so much against it. It's like it's being ignored. All yeah. the facts that the, the, the business is producing are just being neglected and completely ignored. I guess the difference is you do have. Uh, well, maybe it's similar actually, because you do because that that receivables book was in runoff, and hmm. I would say this resembles a business in runoff, right? Because you have a limited amount of time in which to extract cash, yeah, reliably. I mean, the coal could be around in in twenty or thirty years, maybe I don't know, but it, there's a good chance it won't. So, you know, you've probably got fifteen years or so. May maybe you might have twenty, but sort of. 10 to 15 years to extract as much cash as possible. So you really want a really low multiple. You, you need to have high free cash flow to, to justify an investment. But, geez, you've certainly got it. Hmm. I mean, I think when I did that, uh, the free cash flow yield was about 50%. And uh, there's, a, there's a free option in there as well. Whitehaven is one of the only... <laughs> Yes, let oh, that sink in for a second. The hell did I let my emotions overrule my head? <laughs> <laughs> and, what's, uh, and look, we're talking about Whitehaven, but New Hope is in the same boat. New Hope is arguably mm. even, it could be even, it, it's definitely the more sensible choice. It could be even better because New Hope, and I own both, I should add, I own both Whitehaven and New Hope. Whitehaven has the bigger upside um, because it has more operating leverage and financial leverage, and, and that's why I've kind of been been talking about that. But New Hope, has about half its market cap just in franking credits. It has the, I think, the second or third lowest cost mine in Australia. Super high quality, the best management in in the in the industry, and uh, a mine as simple as it gets. Uh, you know, a big piece of machinery just running twenty four seven, digging it out. Like it doesn't get coal does not get easier or or cheaper than this. And so, mm. if you're worried about some of the risks inherent in Whitehaven, and there's certainly specific risks there. New Hope with sort of forty to fifty percent of its market cap and franking credits. I mean that that thing is. And, What's and, the free and cash value? Do you know? that, it's also fifty percent. Right. 
<laughs> it might be it might be a bit bit less than that actually. Although they do generally make more free cash flow. Than that depends on a coal, probably, on a particular yeah. coal price, though. Yeah, but the coal price. Well, I'm talking about it. I'm talking about at spot. Yeah, yeah. at the current spot price. Yeah. Um, at the current so you'd spot have price, to yeah. think that at, the, um, to, to to not justify an investment, you've got to think that the price of coal's got to go down. Well, I've not even when I, when you normalize, and I've normalized it to around seventy um, US dollars, which equates to about a hundred. Uh, US dollars with costs of about $60. So you make a $40, $40 margin for New Hope, a bit less for uh, Whitehaven. But even then, you're still looking at sort of 20% um, free cash flow yield. Is, is there a futures market for coal? I mean, there must be a futures market, isn't there? Um, and, and so what would be the two, three year? I mean, is, is, is the market predicting a big price fall? Uh, look, I, I, I don't know. Um, they're not all that uh, reliable. Yeah, it's not a liquid um, thing, is it? It's yeah, not like for these oil, commodities. Yeah. No, uh, and, and even for oil, it's not all that reliable. Right. Those things change very quickly. Right. But um, but I've been looking at sort of the capital going in and the capital going out. Um, there are now moves to increase production out of Mongolia and China, but they really produce shitty coal. I'm um, sorry. I mean, crappy. Coal. I mean, bad coal. <laughs> bad, bad suboptimal. Coal. Coal. Yeah. I mean, not not not. Yeah, it's suboptimal coal. Yeah, which is not which is not going to cut it in Japan, Taiwan, and Korea, where these new generation power plants I expect to be running for longer than people think because they're not that they're about the equivalent of gas fired plants. They're not as bad as mm. the old school um, old school plans so let me just ask you one question then gorav if you are a member who likes the idea of buying two coal stocks on free cash flow yields of 50 percent <laughs> i've mentioned this quite a few of us but just feel dirty about buying coal can you make an ethical argument to support these businesses through the transition to renewables absolutely I, new hope has been quite vocal about and I guess White Hat, they, they both have made the case. And I think it's a sensible case. If we're rational about this, hmm. like I am agreeing myself, you know, I, I mean, I don't want pollution. I, I've been advocating for a carbon tax for about 20 years. Yeah. I used to work for a think tank and, um, you know, we argued for a carbon tax for about 20 years. It's, it's the sensible thing to do. Why should all these corporations and generators pollute our planet for free? You know, I mean, they should, they should pay and the market will sort out a mechanism to lower it. I mean, it's, it's, the solution is actually very simple. It's not hard and it's very sensible and I think it should happen. But it's just switching off coal within a few years is a stupid solution because coal doesn't provide pollution and nothing else. There's a real utility in burning coal hmm. and, we, and we need it, right? So it, the yeah. answer is not to switch it off over a short time frame. The answer is to phase it out and you need price incentives to do that, which we don't have. So again, hmm. the way we're doing it is stupid. And I want coal gone as well, you know. But these guys produce uh, super high quality coal. It gets burnt in um, these things, these new generation coal plants called called supercritical coal plants. They burn it at really high temperatures and it releases less emissions and less pollutants into the air, about the equivalent of a gas plant. And if you don't fund and support these miners, you know, those plants don't stop working. All they do is switch over to crappier, dirtier coal. And you actually increase your your emissions overall. So the the sensible thing to do is to support the higher quality coal miners, get the get the brown coal, the lignite, the the, the crappy coal out of the market for a period Sub, of time. Suboptimal coal, you mean? Sorry, suboptimal. Yeah. Yes, yes. Sorry. Yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, get them out of the market for a time. Um, yeah, that that's the way that's the way to do it. And I tell you what, if I hear one more millennial. I think technically I might, if millennial is, means you're born in the 80s, I think I'm one as well. But if I hear one more complaining about investing in coal when they're running off buying Bitcoin, which generates <laughs> far more environmental damage. But that causes zero, the demand for the coal-powered power station. <laughs> for zero utility, at least with coal, you get something back for it. What do you get for crypto other than um, horrendous um, energy consumption and, and the madness of youth? How, how much, mm. just quickly, how much uh, um, of the coal that these guys, Whitehaven and New Hope, produce goes to, um, actually to making steel? Is it, do they do none of that? So New Hope that's does an none. easy argument. Yeah, New Hope does none. Whitehaven does a small percentage. It's probably oh, so it's, it's, it's small, less right, than 20%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to need, need more of that. <laughs> I think we should do an article on the ethical case 
for owning these coal stocks. Wow. <laughs> uh, okay, that's interesting. Because <laughs> I, I think that that's a, a sound argument. It's also not politically tenable just to turn off coal fire, fire power mm. stations. I mean, that's not going to happen. Um, and if you can make the argument that the substitute um, product for coal that these two companies produce is worse for the environment um, and there is no path towards rapidly rolling out renewables to replace coal over the next few months um, then it's quite a strong argument. I think if, if, I'm buying it anyway. If you can, if you can actually, I mean, I, I hadn't quite realised it was as clean as you're saying in comparison, you know, being similar to gas. Um, if you can produce reliable uh, evidence for that, then the arguments become very much easier, don't they? Because, we, geez, we, we need a lot of gas. that We're not going to switch to solar cells overnight. Hmm. No. Yeah. No, okay, that's interesting, John. We might look at that in, in the new year. I'm a bit scared to write it. I mean, yeah. I know we're only talking amongst the three of us, so it's yeah, fine no, to express that, these That's news. right, yeah. that's right. <laughs> um, but you're, you, I think you're dodging the real question here, John, which is um, what would you add if you could add something to the comp? Oh, I mean, if I was to... Uh, I think like, Graham nominated Money Me. Yeah. And I really like that stock. Yeah. Mainly because it, it, it presses all of my buttons. Um, in the user experience, it's just absolutely fantastic. The customer reviews are amazing. And it's the kind of business that we might have missed in the yeah. past because it's not doesn't have that conventional competitive advantage. Like the market for short-term loans is very competitive. But when you've got Google reviews uh, like they've got and just they're just glowing, um, there's a, there's a possibility of that business being substantially bigger over the next two years of this competition, I think. And their car loans product is just going that through the roof. Gone. So I think I think that would be one um, because that could grow really rapidly between now and the end of this competition, I think. So Money Me would be one. Uh, what else would I go for? I, I just own Money Me for a moment. So I own mm. that stock as well. And mm. like you, John, I think we may have discussed it um, actually, but... Yeah, the the um, unusually for this industry, there's a fair amount of customer love for the product and the innovation yeah. coming out of there. I mean, the guys are just disrupting left, right, and center. This auto product has gone bonkers. They released a fantastic numbers um, updates for it. There's a lag. The accounting profits are quite complex to decipher, and there's a huge lag between the um uh, the loan being made and the cash flow being collected which is you know part of the industry so i think the profitability is is actually quite hidden in in the company and that might explain why it's gone nowhere right um but i think yeah. i agree with that i i think it's a it's a cracking business i've been really impressed with it yeah that also pay product uh, is 100 million and i think when we mm. first looked at it um you know i think the first figure they reported was 8 million over the first 7 weeks yeah. And they hadn't even advertised uh, or anything. That, that, those numbers aren't quite correct, but no, 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 no yeah. advertising. It was just, and 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 that was still probably in lockdown. Yeah. Um, so, and now it's a hundred million after eight months. So, sure, this just a really rapid pace of growth in that business, and it's also, I think, it's also because the, the management is quite innovative, as you say. There's the potential for a lot of things to go right there, as in in other product lines mm -hmm. as well. So, I, I would choose that one. I've um I've had the green whistle many times for my bone marrow biopsies. Um, whenever I speak to my oncologist, you know, he asks me about stocks I've been buying, and I I tell him about medical developments, <laughs> and he goes, "Oh, that's rubbish. That's rubbish. You know, that drug's so old." And uh, I think a lot of people miss the fact that it's a delivery mechanism. That's the interesting thing about yeah, it. That's so right. Probably think about that. Yeah. It's uh, a crazy team. You, you own that, don't you? Yeah, that, I've got that. management that. team. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great team. Yeah. Yeah. CSL, so the, the management team there is excellent. Mm. Um, Experience Co. I can't, I can't really get my head around. Uh, I've got a friend who, the skydiver, who, who worked for them and broke his leg <laughs> a couple of years ago <laughs> <laughs> on a hard landing. Right. So they got um, a lawsuit on so their hands, do they? they <laughs> I think they might have. But uh, I'm a big fan, like Nathan. I'm a big fan of Frontier Digital, so mm. that's um, a possibility too. I think so. They'd be my three, maybe. Yeah. 
Geez, you'd be pretty close to you might be you you might be close to beating me, John. They're great picks. Oh, well, Imagine in the competition. That, right? That's we're, we're a year. A year, in. year. We're a year <laughs> didn't in. pick him a year ago. Yeah, well, he might have. I mean, I'm not saying. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, we did have this spreadsheet in front of me showing all of your returns. You know, <laughs> yeah. a year ago. <laughs> so you, you'd have picked Globe, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, I think we better round it off. Here. I've got a couple of stock picks for the new year. Bit of a reflection about what's happened, and we got uh, to hear from John Addis, which we rarely get to do. So, John. Like to have you on more often in the new year. Sure. Excellent. Sounds good. But for the moment, um, gentlemen, have a lovely break. Thanks for joining me. We should also thank our producer, Stephanie, who works uh, a lot more than we do when, when we do this podcast. Oh, yeah, make sure everything <laughs> yeah. sounds oh, good yeah, and works. Right. Yeah, thanks, Steph. Uh, and yeah. puts up with all our, um, all, all our shenanigans. I thought I expected her to say something, but no, she's not going to say anything because she's not mic'd up. Of course not. Okay. Well, um, I'm sure she's nodding her appreciation. <laughs> She's asleep, <laughs> yeah. more, li- more likely. <laughs> Once we start talking about yeah, cold, the yeah, she just lie, stretches out on the floor and you don't see her for a couple yeah, of Yeah, much hours. like uh, her, the, the audience, I suspect. Her hard work starts when, when uh, the recording ends and she has to make us sound good. Well, let's get her to work then. Yeah. Uh, JC, thanks for your efforts um, over the year. It was great to have you on board. You've been on, I think you've been on more podcasts than... Almost, almost anyone, so I appreciate it. Apart from you. But uh, from me, yeah. yeah, thanks and happy Christmas, everyone. Wonderful. Thanks, you. Yeah, happy Christmas. Enjoy the holidays, everybody. Thanks a lot for your support over the past 18 months, especially. Um, it's a different environment now when we're going to have to get our heads around that next year, but it's going to be an interesting one, I think. And John, we're back in, uh, in early Jan. Yeah, I'm taking January okay. off, but um, we have light coverage resumes, I think, on the 10th of January. Okay. And then we're all back on board early February. And it is important that all of us get that time over Christmas just to sit back a bit and do some reading and think about the year ahead rather than just having to report on the latest news of the various stocks that we're covering. So it's a time not just to recharge, but to rethink things as well. So we all have to come back with a, uh, I wouldn't say a different attitude, but just a refreshed kind of mental headspace because it's been very draining exciting over the last year or two but um yeah we all we need to come back i think in a uh, refreshed but also with a slightly different perspective as to where we are and what might happen well, just on that note very quickly um what are we reading over the break if we can do a little round robin um john what about you oh dear i've got a load of books i've got to read in novels. yeah me too i'm doing novels um, as well. so i'm, I'm reading novels over Christmas, I'm going to try and stay away from finance yeah, for two or three weeks. I'll read the normal magazines yeah. that I would, and the websites that I would normally go to. But yeah, I just like to uh, broaden my mind away from finance for for a couple of uh, a couple of weeks. I've also started on um, a book called Stalingrad. Oh yeah, I've read um, that. <laughs> a bit of light reading. What do you think? A bit of light reading. Yeah, yeah. The perfect beach. After novel. I read beach book. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, my new next door neighbour has got a Polish background, so we were talking about, uh, you know, how the Poles really got done over two or three times in the Second World War by just about everybody last night over a bottle of wine. Uh, but it's a fascinating and extremely well-researched yeah, yeah. Um, book, and it just gives you a perspective of the war that you don't really get, you know, from that on-the-ground personal experience. So uh, I could recommend that. If you're interested in that kind it of thing, it is surprisingly gripping. I don't like war stuff at all, but this was, I must no. admit, I was riveted as well. It's fantastic. Yeah. 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 Uh, who's the author? What's is he called? It uh, Beaver? Beaver or yeah. Beaver? Yeah. yeah. Like he's done a few of those uh, and he's done it before as well. I, I start his second book, mm-hmm. get through it, but it, it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it's really, really good. Second it. JC, where are you? Uh, so I'm on novels as well. I think, um, you know, we're always a bit obsessive reading all the financial news and everything. And uh, with COVID and everything, it just sucks you in. You can get a bit obsessive about reading about all the, oh, you know, restrictions and the vaccines and all the everything and trying to figure out where it's going. It does your head in, I half expected you. Even though I've reading. stopped trying. I, I half that? expected you to read the meteorology books, JC. You become a Oh, no, no. I've, yeah, well, look, uh, I, in the until this year, actually, 
I've been most my, most of my reading's been sort of factual sort of mm-hmm. books about you know interests like astronomy or music and things like that. But um, I've really got into novels this year as a as a sort of bit of an escape, a bit of downtime. I plan to do plenty of more of that over Christmas, and it's been. Um, uh, so Bernard Cornwell has been my go-to this year, and he's um, a writer, English writer of um, novels, sort of set in uh, English history. Um, a lot of them, the thirteen, I think, a series of thirteen is called the or the Saxon Chronicles, I think they're called. But they make up a Netflix series, or half of them make up a Netflix series called The Last Kingdom, which is what sort of got me started. Um, but he's also uh, written a bunch of uh, a series um, on. Uh, King Arthur, and then um, called the Warlord Chronicles, I think, and then one on the uh, around the Hundred Years' War, and they they've got sort of fictional characters, um, Stonehenge as well. He's got one, and Agincourt, um, and they, they've got fictional characters, but they're I think reasonably accurate uh, to the culture, the sense of the time. So uh, mm-hmm. I've been really enjoying that. It's a fascinating period of of uh, English history. Um, and well, periods. I mean, it goes over a thousand years. What I just said, um, and uh, you know, it actually leads you into doing a bit more research about the Hundred Years' War and everything. I mean, you know, bit of pandemic aside, you know, we've got it. Well, actually, the Hundred Years' War leads into the Black Death, or it has the Black Death at the beginning of it. And uh, now that was a that was a serious pandemic. So uh, um, yeah, interesting context. It's interesting that we're all um, leaning towards novels. Um, I am as well. Um, I think this is, I've discovered this a few years ago, actually, that um, you can overdo it with finance and nonfiction. And I find um, fiction, it really does, I don't know if it helps my investing, but it um, it definitely aids um, the function of my brain. Uh, and I do helps actually the writing as well. Definitely helps the writing. Definitely helps the writing. Fiction, yeah. You know, I think, yeah, that was a, a key part of, you know, all of the training that we have when a new analyst comes on board, you know, I resolutely pushed the idea of reading novels because analysts tend to get sort of deprogrammed in terms of their imagination and their ability to express themselves on paper. Um, Finance has a sort of dulling effect on that part of their brains and novels was one way of kind of triggering it. So I think it's really important to not just have a break from it, but just to... Immerse yourself in other worlds, I suppose, which is what novels allow you to do. And there's a kind of a mind-expanding component that can help you see the real world that you currently exist in and the finance world. It kind of feeds into it, I think, and helps you see things in a different kind of way. So I'm a big fan of novels as improving our skills as investors. Well, you'd be pleased to know I'm reading the dorkiest novel ever. I'm reading book one of Wheel of Time, uh, which I've wanted to do for a while. But it's the... uh, hardcore high fantasy which won't suit everyone but geez if you're into it it's great um gents uh we've gone a bit over time let's let's leave it there thank you again for your time john i didn't say uh, a proper goodbye to you but happy christmas and we'll see you again in the new year thanks for everyone else uh thank you for listening and uh thanks for your support happy holidays cheers